I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Corey. Hi, Elise. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. I am 
as you know, very excited to talk about our topics today. Yes. And your research specifically, I loved getting in a text message in the middle of the week being like, I can't wait to share with you what I read. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert, a lot of like first person documents from the 1500s and 1600s, as per usual. That <laughs> is These were true. like exciting. And it's so worth it because I love the contextualizing of the plays. So I can't wait for your research. Yeah. Speaking of that, though, I do have a few things for our listeners. Uh, we do have a content warning. Our discussion today is going to have mentions of abortion, reproductive health, and brief mentions of assault and violence. So please listen with care. And we also do not recommend any early modern medical advice that we may discuss in today's episode. Absolutely not. No. And last but not least, we may use the words women, feminine, and female interchangeably to discuss issues pertaining to non-cis male bodies. And while we know that people of all genders can be affected by patriarchy and misogyny, as well as become pregnant and need to be able to make their own decisions about reproductive health, we are aligning our language for this episode with that of the early modern writers we are analyzing, and they stick to a binary. Yeah, they definitely do. To the dismay of everybody trying to talk <laughs> about and perform Shakespeare in 2022. Trying to talk about him. But thank you, Elise. Yeah, so listeners, we are going to be talking about Ophelia, Gertrude, and female agency in a few different uh, lenses. This play is often associated with misogyny and misogynistic tropes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look at what these tropes are and how they emerged from the early modern moralists' anxieties and how they were used in early modern satire. So attitudes that men have towards seemingly unfaithful women, as well as what in that period makes that woman unfaithful. And yeah, that's what I'm going to be talking about. Ooh, okay. Before we begin... Let's look at some telling scenes when analyzing Hamlet and misogyny, because as much as I love Hamlet, he is inherently misogynist. The character. <laughs> the character it makes some pretty yeah, yeah. horrible things that we have to reckon with. Yeah. At the core of the matter is Act 3, Scene 1, where after denying that Hamlet had ever given Ophelia gifts... He assails Ophelia with repeated negations of any links between beauty and honesty or between women and chastity. That's the big thing that Ophelia is being attacked with. Mm -hmm. Then he claims that he never loved Ophelia and Hamlet urges her to enter a nunnery to be cloistered from corruption. Then he gives her a plague as a dowry and that is that no matter how pure she may be, she will not escape calumny. Yeah. And the irony of this scene is that Hamlet is the one who acts as her chief slanderer. No one else has shown up to slander Ophelia yet. Right. The other men in the play are not particularly supportive of Ophelia in any meaningful way. However, well, most everything that he warns her about is coming from him. He's the one perpetuating all of this. And Hamlet showers insult upon insult into Ophelia and her entire sex for using makeup, dancing, behaving seductively, and nicknaming God's creatures. Hamlet then blames these vices done by all women as the cause for making him mad and calls for a moratorium on all future marriages. He repeats that Ophelia must go to a nunnery and exits, leaving Ophelia alone. I just want to make sure we have like these scenes specifically. We're, we're thinking specifically about get thee to a nunnery and, and the closet scene. The scene with Gertrude, yes. Hamlet and Gertrude. Yes. So in another pivotal scene, the closet scene, act three, scene four, 
Hamlet's fury towards his mother is so intense that not even Polonius's death can make him pause and reflect on or properly react to that accident. Hamlet is so fixated on his mother's second marriage, which he claims is not love because, quote, at your age, the heyday in blood is tame, it's humble, unquote. Hamlet also charges that only the devil could allow Gertrude to live, linking Gertrude to the devil and sin. The closet scene contains some of the nastiest examples of what Brustein calls sex nausea in the language of the play. So there's images of mildew, blisters, ulcers, rankness, and contagion. So this Hamlet that we've seen is sex-obsessed. But for Hamlet, sex no longer holds pleasure, love, or healthy human connection. And when Ophelia goes mad, she becomes sex-obsessed like Hamlet. Ophelia's elegies for her father alternate with body songs riddled with sexual puns and phallic allusions. And they also speak of how premarital sex can invalidate marriage vows. I know that you're going to speak more on this scene. But in these songs, uh, one of these songs, Ophelia also sings, quote, Quoth she, before you tumbled me, you promised me to wed. She would I have done by yonder son, and thou hadst not come to my bed, unquote. So the maid of the song enters as a virgin at her lover's door and leaves as a castaway, similarly to Hamlet's rejection of Ophelia. Every scene between Hamlet and Ophelia makes me wonder how Hamlet can possibly claim that he loved Ophelia at her funeral ceremony. So is Claudius correct to reject the spurn lover motive for Hamlet's madness? Claudius says, quote, love, his affections do not that way tend, unquote. After declaring his love for Ophelia at the funeral, Hamlet doesn't appear to give Ophelia another thought for the remainder of the play. He is focused on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's fate and the duel with Laertes, as well as the revenge plot. So that's what we see. However, Hamlet's fury towards women has cultural context. Shakespeare was hardly alone in expressing misogynistic attitudes of real, imagined, or assumed infidelity. This was a cultural misogyny that was depicted on the stage by many early modern satirists. Male suspicion of female virtue, particularly towards ladies of the court, was almost pandemic in the last years of Elizabeth's rule and increased exponentially during James's rule. Apart from the recurrent criticism of shrews who were unpleasant and ill-tempered, like Kate, an early Shakespeare female who's dated from like 1590 to 1592, one did not usually find attacks on women, either middle-class wives or on ladies of the court, to any noticeable extent in the drama until 1599. On June 1st, 1599, the Archbishop of Canterbury, John Whitgift, and the Bishop of London, Richard Bancroft, issued to the Master and Wardens of the Stationer's Company, the publishers, a ban prohibiting the further publication of certain works, as well as the destruction of copies that already existed. The reasoning behind the Bishop's ban on satire is not clear, but it is clear that literary satire was now banned and it found its way on stage. And so dramatists adapted this new subject and began to write not of love, but of lust. Uh, and I do want to acknowledge that I don't know much about this ban. I didn't excavate it very far, aside from some DuckDuckGo searches to kind of see the gist of it. <laughs> Maybe we can put a pin in this for a censorship mini episode. I don't know. This is going to get into mine, but also around this time, there's just a proliferation of like other types of literature being printed. Like publishing's huge. So like a ban on one genre is both kind of a big deal, like mm. why ban that one? And also like, oh, but there's also so much more to read right That's now. That's interesting. But put a pin in it. Yeah, <laughs> let's put a pin in. Yeah. Okay, so prior to the ban on satire of 1599, Shakespeare and his contemporaries wrote of evil women 
who were loathsome and unclean, like Tamara in Titus, mm-hmm. which is like 15. 50- that's exactly who I thought of. That is, yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, you mean Tamara? <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's like 1588 to 1593. But after 1599, the indictment intensified as bait for adultery. So think Gertrude. Mm. Because of this new and worse theatrical woman's lack of moral stamina and lascivious fashion, her male counterparts had two options. One, submit to her temptations and be damned. Or number two, reject and participate in sex hatred and sex nausea. To the moralists and the satirists, it is always vice versus virtue for women. And spoiler, more frequently than not, vice wins in these productions. Therefore, women's lust is one of man's prime obstacles because the temptress woman urges the male to lose his as well. And I'm just thinking about how that hasn't changed because I'm having flashbacks to the Australian Macbeth with the sexy school witches. (laughs) And lust wasn't the only mode a woman had to tempt a man. The other was her beauty. To early modern moralists, there were two methods for man's falling passively at the hands of the temptress. One, arousing lust through her beauty, or two, laying snares for his soul. As we discussed in our Macbeth series, women of this time period were thought to be linked with devils. In addition, women are linked to illness, since women can be carriers of venereal diseases and, according to moralists, had the power to physically damn men through disease. If women are such a threat, you might be wondering... How do you deal with these women? And the answer to an early modernist was by removing her completely from the source of corruption, like to the country or, as Hamlet suggests, to a nunnery. A nunnery. Mm-hmm. There was even a dilemma about regulating the sex lives of widows, like Gertrude. St. Paul urged widows to remarry to avoid the risk of damnation. However, Elizabethan moralists disapproved of second marriages. Taking multiple husbands was considered a form of legal adultery and a reflection of the widow's lustfulness. Duke Ferdinand of John Webster's The Duchess of Malfi of 1613 states, quote, Mary, they are most luxurious, will wed twice, unquote. And Hamlet himself states that taking a second husband, quote, makes marriage vows as false as dicers' oaths, unquote. So those are the opinions of the moralists and the satirists. But that's not necessarily how the members of court viewed women and... Right. This is something that's like taking an idea to an extreme. Like, that's what satire does. Mm-hmm. I think what you're, what yeah. I'm hearing you get is like, just because these playwrights are writing these misogynist things, it's about a discussion about misogyny. It's not necessarily promoting misogynist ideas, especially in a satire. It's perhaps skewering them and making the court think hard about maybe those who do have misogynist Mm -hmm. ideas. Yeah. So satirists could either be commenting on or reinforcing misogyny because the aristocrats in court were emphasizing the harmony between inner and outer beauty, which is not something that the middle-class satirists were expressing. The middle-class satirists were expressing skepticism about the ability of attractive women to remain chaste. And that brings us back to Hamlet and Ophelia in Act 3, Scene 1, After Hamlet asks Ophelia if she is honest and then asks if she is fair, Ophelia says, Could beauty, my lord, have better commerce with honesty? And Hamlet says, For the power of beauty will sooner transform honesty from what it is to a bod than the force of honesty can translate beauty into likeness. This was sometime a paradox, but now the time gives it proof. Ophelia is oblivious to the moralist paradox and uh, upholds the aristocratic view of beauty as the handmaiden of virtuous spirit. But Hamlet, on the other hand, is disenchanted, like the satirists, 
by his mother's adultery. In the play, Hamlet compares himself to the most abject species of woman, a bod, a drab, a scullion, a harlot, a strumpet, and a whore who unpacks herself with words. Hamlet talks about painting one's face and the lies that come of painted faces. And that was a real conversation that was happening in early modern England at the time. The misogynists like Hamlet do not blame women for their natural beauty. Instead, it's the cosmetics and the fashion that was to blame. There was this notion reflected in plays like Middleton's Father Hubbard's Tales from 1604 and Hick Moulier that women, even gentlewomen, were vain and would enter sex work and sell their bodies just to pay for trinkets. So if a woman wanted to look nice, that was a telltale sign that you would, you know, sell your body for new makeup and a new corset. Sexist is going to sexist. Exactly. That's the thing. That's not Mm -hmm. in line with what was happening at the English courts because uh, the English court fashions of the time were quite extravagant. Mm Mm-hmm. At the time of the Queen's death, Elizabeth's wardrobe was said to number 2,000 beautiful gowns. Oh, my God. The era was full of fashion. Are you thinking about 2,000 gowns? I'm thinking about 2,000 gowns. I'm thinking about, like, closet space. A walk-in castle Castle closet. closet. Like Hampton Court. those were also large garments. And also, like, the time that that would take Mm -hmm. to construct all of those gowns. And also, like, put them on during the day. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and an example of these extravagant fashions was there was a doublet that had been designed for single women that exposed the breasts almost entirely. And you mentioned in our Age and Aging episode in King Lear this moment where Elizabeth appeared before a French diplomat with her breasts exposed. Pretty much almost out. Yeah. Yeah. Like wearing that doublet. Anyway, there was so much decadence going on in the royal court during Elizabeth's reign. And in James's reign, too. But mm-hmm. what grinded English moralists and satirists gears more than the breast exposure of this doublet was the practice of painting or wearing makeup. Writers like John Lilly, Samuel Kitchell, and Thomas Nash all had negative opinions of the, as they called it, Italian fashion of cosmetic art. However, it did arrive in England over the course of Elizabeth's reign and was quite popular in the court. And in 1593, Nash wrote, Quote, gorgeous ladies of the court, never was I so admitted so near any of you as to see how you torture poor old time by sponging, pinning, and puncing, unquote. So it's that guy that's like, you're too old to wear makeup. You shouldn't try to act young. You're too old to wear makeup. You should dress age appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. And Elizabeth, especially in her old age, was prone to painting her face. By the time of James and his queen, Anne of Denmark, the practice of painting was widespread in the court. So Puritan moralists and Elizabethan Jacobean satirists accused Elizabeth of tampering with the handiwork of God, and so both parties linked cosmetic aids with immorality. Again, Thomas Nash said, quote, If not to tempt and to be thought worthy to be tempted, why die they and diet they their faces with so many drugs as they do, as it were to correct God's workmanship, unquote. So it is certainly similar to Hamlet's insult to Ophelia. He says to her, quote, I have heard of your paintings too well enough. God hath given you one face and you make yourself another, unquote. As a result of their loathing for paint, playwrights passed on a simile that compared women to a gilded tomb or temple. They're handsome without. Within, they're full of rottenness, corruption, and disease. 
Barnaby Barnes's The Devil's Charter of 1607 kills the vain heroine of the play by poisoning her with her own cosmetics. <laughs> the Revenger's Tragedy of 1607's character Vin Dice remarks to his dead mistress, quote, See ladies with false forms you deceive men, but cannot deceive worms, unquote. And Hamlet links vanity and death to the skull Yorick. Quote, now get you to my lady's chamber and tell her, let her paint an inch thick to this favor she must come, unquote. So like you painting your face, you're still going to rot when you get to the end of your life and you're dead like these corpses. That is pretty much my reading. Yeah, obviously, especially in Hamlet, we have some very explicitly said misogyny. While these misogynist tropes are still recognizable to a modern audience, there's cultural context surrounding early modern women that I think is lost to today's audiences and readers. Things that were just understood by and obvious to Shakespeare's audience as acts of female agency are lost nowadays. Mm. <laughs> and one of the fundamentals of agency is the right to decide what happens to one's body. All that to say, let's talk about early modern abortion and how it shows up in Hamlet. Let's do it. Specifically, what I am going to be looking at is two passages from Ophelia and Gertrude, as well as thinking about the timeline of Hamlet. Okay. But first, before I get into Gertrude and Ophelia and the two portions that I'm specifically looking at in this play, let's have a little background, shall we? We shall. Corey, how much do you know about reproductive health in the early modern era? Um, I will say little to nothing about early modern reproductive health. Okay. What would your impressions be? Like, what would your what would you think it would be? Well, um, as somebody who knows more from this podcast, I'm going to go with what I would have thought before I did scholarship. I'm going to go with general mm. ideas. Yeah, yeah. I would say that I would think, I would assume that there was no form of birth control. I would assume that an abortion would be very painful and dangerous. And I would assume that there was a high chance of death during an abortion mm -hmm. in that era. But I also might assume that one was less likely to get an abortion because there were fewer options for an early modern woman. And so you would be like, okay, well, I'll keep the baby. Again, these are just things that based on preconceived notions of the era, I would guess. Great. So I'm going to start with law, early modern English law. Do you think abortion would be legal? Um, If I were to go back to a person who assumes that they yeah, don't know, pre, pre. then I would say yeah. no. But knowing more, I would say it probably was legal. Being a listener to this podcast, you would be correct. Um, so early modern English law from the Middle Ages, we're talking 1200s to 1300s here, defined pregnancy and abortion based on the timing of fetal movement, which is around four to six months. It varies on the pregnancy, but the first signs of fetal movement generally happen during that second trimester of pregnancy. And they called this time the quickening or the ensoulment. This is when they believed that a viable fetus was in there. And most cases that came before English court of abortion, or what I'm going to call causing the death of a fetus with potential for life, mm. are due to assaults that resulted in pregnancy termination. Chemical abortions early in pregnancy attempted by women were not indictable as crimes under English common law. Oh. So you could not be named a criminal. And there are no cases found prosecuting contraception as a crime. However, we do have evidence dating back to ancient times of contraception 
the medieval times specifically, they were very, like the early Middle Ages, very much about contraception. Loved it. As the early Christian church continued to gain power, the early Christian church was not about it. So Mm. English common law did not punish abortion as a felony at any time. It was punishable by ecclesiastical courts, which we talked about how, uh, especially in England, there were ecclesiastical church courts and civil courts um, that presided over different things. So it was punishable by an ecclesiastical court until 1540. But if a case came before a civil court, it was a misdemeanor. At most in the early modern period, a high misdemeanor, which essentially was a fine. Again, no civil law, criminal convictions for abortion. And really focused on if, for example, um, there's cases where a man hit a woman and her pregnancy terminated and it was deemed to have been as a result of being assaulted. In that case, the man would be charged with that misdemeanor crime of causing an abortion. Okay. So this is more like it's about choice and the man doesn't have a choice, a say in the matter, but the woman does. Before this time, and again, like this is all about before the time of the quickening, the fetal movement. So after fetal movement, if anything is done to kind of harm the fetus, that's an abortion and can be tried by the civil court. But beforehand, women could take herbal remedies and did Mm. to um, support their reproductive health in all directions. So there were herbal recipes, plant decoctions and syrups and things. I know we briefly talked about like Lady Grace Mildmay in our episodes on mental health Mm -hmm. and the humors and there are recipes that could stay the menses so they could try to stop themselves from having a period Mm -hmm. to promote pregnancy Mm -hmm. because they're trying to get pregnant. They're trying to get to that second trimester. Or um, there were also recipes that were known to start and encourage and purge the woman of her menses, Mm -hmm. which in many cases was a first trimester abortion. Um, So where did these recipes come from? You might be wondering. I am wondering. So um, there were these books called Herbals. It was a genre, really. And between 1525 and 1640, that genre boomed. There were more than 24 different herbals, which are like these, imagine like a dictionary, but just about plants. Okay. Or they're like medical texts, like Grey's Anatomy, but all about plants. And they are like catalogs of these medicinal plants, their uses, their qualities, and then recipes of like how you can combine them to make something to cure whatever ails Mm -hmm. you. Early modern lay people actively engaged with these texts They would test the recipes inside them. They'd add notes. We have all kinds of marginalia in these first-person documents, in the manuscript versions of these first-person documents that we have. However, in these texts, they don't often write about abortions explicitly. Or when they do, they're specifically talking about that later-term abortion. Instead, again, they talk about bringing about the menses. Additionally, early modern women were expected to be experts in medicinal herbs. We've talked about, like I said earlier, Lady Grace Mildmay. Remember her? And that included abortion recipes. Mm. Early modern women commonly read medical texts such as Gerard's The Herbal, and herbals specifically were fairly common reading materials for early modern women. And then the early modern stage also drew on this like common knowledge and popularity of the herbals and the recipes contained therein, 
we see lay healers in early modern plays by Shakespeare and his contemporaries, and we see them explicitly use written materials to validate their own successful healing acts. Shakespeare specifically depicts medicine as something that can be practiced by empirics, lay people, or wise women, but not by physicians. There's also this debate in early modern society, like physicians are trying to assert that they have better accreditation. And when we look across the early modern stage, there's plays that are very like pro-physicians, like the physicians know what they're doing. Shakespeare specifically, in later plays, he has two lay practitioners actually succeed where physicians have previously failed. Also that ends well. Also that ends well. And then Shakespeare also depicts a permissibility towards self-medication. We don't see characters like go to a doctor and get something. Instead, we see, for example, Romeo and Laertes, who are both able to purchase poisons and have some knowledge of the use of them as just consumers. Yeah. And they go to lay people. Like, Laertes goes to a mountebank. Romeo goes to an apothecary. And I have a quote here from Sarah Neville's Early Modern Herbals and the Book Trade, English Stationers and the Commodification of Botany. It appears that in Shakespeare's own medical ethos, So long as the medicament consumed is a simple or a plant, such self-medicating is common and acceptable. The simplicity of simples, coupled with the reinforcement of such knowledge in print, enabled early moderns to treat their own illnesses. Wow. All that to say, knowledge of herbalism and plant properties and what they do medically is incredibly well known in Shakespeare's time. I think now I'm about ready to actually talk about Ophelia and Gertrude and how this like early modern knowledge of herbal remedies and the early modern concept of abortion and what we explicitly say versus what we don't explicitly say because it is such common knowledge to our audience all tie together in Ophelia's final scene and Gertrude's description of her death. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? I am so ready. I've been waiting for this for so long. I'm all ears. Okay. So there are lists of plants associated with Ophelia's mad scene and Gertrude's description of her death. Mm -hmm. You earlier talked about how Ophelia also talks about a woman who has lost her virginity to a man who promised to wed her and then doesn't. In this context, it's important to note the timing of Ophelia's death. Mm -hmm. This play is a play that takes place over many months. From the beginning of the play to the end of Act 4, we cover three months of three months. time. Got it. So it's generally agreed upon. Ophelia dies in Act Ophelia 4. Ophelia dies at the end of Act 4. That is the scene where we get Gertrude's description of her right. death. There's this suggestion that Hamlet and Ophelia have seen each other privately around or slightly before the beginning of actions of the play. Mm-hmm. Right? Until she is told, don't see him anymore. Yeah, that's true because it's... In the first act, one of the first scenes that we see with Ophelia, she's talking to Laertes, and Laertes is warning her about Hamlet and his affections mm-hmm. and her affections with him. And then Polonius says, why don't you ghost him? Right. To see if it's really love or not. Right. And then we get Hamlet distraught after a few weeks to like a month, and he is distraught, and Claudius and Polonius are like, haha. It's love. Love. Let's test him. Then we get the nunnery scene um, where she decides to return his letters. And then, like, Polonius dies. Hamlet is sent away. More time passes because Laertes has to get the news that his father has died. 
and come back to France before Ophelia dies. Mm -hmm. So just want to keep those things in mind when these scenes are talked about, especially Ophelia's flowers. They're talked about with the poetic representation and meaning of the flowers. And while the Elizabethans did have a like language of flowers, it wasn't as codified as like a Victorian language language of flowers. So I want to make sure. Yeah. So Ophelia says the flowers that she gives out, she gives out like this. There's rosemary. That's for remembrance. Pray you love. Remember. And there's pansies. That's for thoughts. There's fennel for you and columbines. There's rue for you. And here's some for me. We may call it Herba Grace Sundays. You may wear your rue with a difference. There's a daisy. I would give you some violets, but they withered all when my father died. Mm-hmm. The symbolic meanings that often are attributed to these flowers, rosemary for remembrance, mm-hmm. pansies for thoughts, fennel for flattery, columbines, infidelity associated with cuckoldry, rue, herbigrace, regret, daisy, unrequited love, unhappy love, dissembling love, and violets with fidelity and faithfulness. So then uh, Gertrude's flowers, or the plants that Gertrude mentions when she comes to report on Ophelia's death, are there is a willow grows askant the brook that shows his hoary leaves in the glassy stream. Therewith, fantastic garlands she did make of crow flowers, nettles, daisies, and long purples that liberal shepherds give a grosser name, but our cold, cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. There on the pendant boughs, her cronet weeds clambering to hang, an envious sliver broke, where down her weedy trophies and herself fell in the weeping brook. Her clothes spread wide and mermaid-like a while, they bore her up, which time she chanted snatches of old lauds as one incapable of her own distress, or like a creature native and endued unto that element. But long it could not be that her garments, heavy with their drink, pulled the poor wretch from her melodious lay to muddy death. So willow, crow flowers, nettles, daisies again, and long purples. Willow is associated symbolically with grief and unhappy love, Crow flowers, they are unknown exactly, but they are believed to be buttercups or ragged robins. Nettles are associated with pain, poison, and ugliness. Daisies, again, unrequited love, unhappy love, dissembling love. And long purples, again, could be multiple different flowers. But specifically, I'm going to be looking at the cuckoo pint or wild arum, which are two out of the three that are generally agreed upon. Okay. And for crow flowers, I'm going to be looking at a specific buttercup genus known as the crowfoot. Cute. All right. Out of 11 different flowers, herbs, plants, um, how many do you think have medicinal properties? Um, I'm going to guess probably, so you've got 11 total. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess 10 out of 11. Very close. It's 11 out of 11. I was going to go with 11 out of 11, but I was like, that's two on the nose. Well, tell me, what is the medicinal purpose for these plants and herbs and flowers? It's pretty much abortion or pain relief. Oh, I wonder um, how that applies to Ophelia and her predicament over these X amount of months. And her predicament over Hamlet, the man who she definitely had private time with, who she then broke up with. He told her to get to a nunnery. Broke her heart. Was weird to her and then killed her father? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then, of course, that one song that uh, she sang when she was going mad, 
I don't know. It's like we haven't studied madness. Yeah. I don't think that that's what happens to Shakespeare's mad characters. They don't sing songs. Shakespeare's that mad to... characters don't sing songs that relate to their situation at all. Exactly. Right? Huh. No, they do. They definitely do. <laughs> okay. So let me just go through them in order, shall I? Yes. Just say this is a combination of a few of those herbals, like what early moderns believed. And then there's also some like modern testing that's been done on some of these plants that like shows what exactly they do. So rosemary, it's for remembrance, but it's also both a contraceptive and abortifacient. Mm. Um, and it's shown in animal testing to induce the inhibition of gonadotrophin or prolactin secretion and is sometimes called an anti-gonadotropic. I'm getting real sciencey mm-hmm. on this history podcast. I love it. Any of our like science listeners are going to be like, this is my moment. This is my episode. Yeah. Prolactin specifically stimulates breast development and milk production in female bodies. Mm-hmm. Gonadotropin deficiency leads to infertility. There are two specific gonadotropins in mammals, follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Both of those deal with egg production in a body with eggs, eggs and a uterus. Huh. Primates, specifically humans, also produce a gonadotropin called human chorionic gonadotropin, which is a hormone for the maternal recognition of pregnancy produced by trophoblast cells that are surrounding a growing embryo. And these cells eventually form the placenta after implementation. The presence of human chorionic gonadotropin, or HCG, is detected in some HCG pregnancy strip test. This hormone also helps with ovulation. Hmm. So rosemary inhibits the production of the hormone that recognizes a body as pregnant, helps with ovulation, and helps with egg production. Wow. I had no Mm -hmm. idea. I just thought rosemary for your remembrance. remembrance. Yeah. Pansies, there for thoughts. Culpepper in 1652's The English Physician, which they're being written about like 50 years after Hamlet. It's a cataloging of existing information that's just out there in popular culture. Pansies or heartsies, they're good for venereal complaints. Now, what are violets good for? I'm just going to jump around a little bit. Uh, Fidelity and faithfulness, but also pain relief, cooling, reducing inflammation, purging the body of choleric humors, which would be lust. (sighs) So both pansies and violets do that. Uh, Fennel, sure, you can say it's for flattery. But that Lorsch manuscript, again, that theological text compiled in the scriptorium of a monastic library circa 800 after the Common Era, just flat out says it was used to cause an abortion. And then in Macer's Herbal, which is an herbal from 1070, it was listed as a menstrual purgative, De Viribus Herborum, which became one of the most widely consulted texts on herbal medicines during the late medieval and early Renaissance periods. That's what Macer's Herbal is. Culpepper in The Complete Herbalist also says that fennel provokes the menses. One recipe actually contains fennel, rue seed, and alum. Culpepper advises that pregnant women should not take it as it provokes the menses, brings away both birth and afterbirth. <sighs> like if you take this you will lose it. after the quickening, it will still cause an right. abortion. Columbines are often said to be associated with fidelity and infidelity. And while they are safe if consumed in small quantities, columbine poisoning can be fatal. And Nicholas Culpepper in The English Physician recommended that the seeds be taken in wine to speed the process of childbirth. So again, something that can kind of like speed along a women's process. Mm -hmm. Here's the big one. There's really no other reason to have it included in a list. Rue or herb of grace is used 
as an abortifacient. In fact, Hippocrates lists it in a recipe for a, quote, potent uterine abortifacient. Mm. Culpepper in The English Physician says about garden rue, this is so well known, both by this name and the name Herbagrace, I shall not need to write you any further description of it, but I shall only show you the virtues of it as followeth. It provoketh the urine and women's courses, being taken in either meat or drink, frees women from suffocation of the mother. In The Complete Herbalist, he says that combined with sagapenum, which is a, like, resin, it expels the dead child and afterbirth. Okay. Yeah. And this is something that pretty much Everybody knows. Everybody knows. He doesn't have to explain. Doesn't have to explain. We have in the 1100s a text that says it brings about the menstrua and aborts an embryo. Just flat out says that. Uh Clear as day. There are hints in early modern texts that women regularly took a small amount of rue with food as birth control. And it was also thought at the time to stop the production of semen. Oh, okay. So it would be kind of like a, a plan B. Rue is um, kind of nasty. It's not as good as Plan B. Okay. But I guess in theory of what it does... There's no other medicinal purpose for it. It is purely... If you see Rue listed, it is provoking the menses, shall we say. Okay. The daisy? Sure. Unrequited love associated with unhappy love or dissembling love. Culpepper says that it's also pain relief and can help temper the heat of collar. Again, cooling lust reducing inflammation, and I already went over violets, but one more time, also reducing inflammation. So some of these are like taking a Tylenol mm-hmm. alongside your plan B or your chemical abortion. Right. Fascinating. So that is all of them that Ophelia has grouped together in a matter of a few lines. And I think the early modern audience would go, oh, I know what a combination of all of those things would do. Mm-hmm. And of course, we in 2022, or really from, I don't know, maybe the Victorian period to now, or some other period, mm-hmm. it's lost on us because that's not a part of our medical culture. Right. So then um, getting to the flowers that Gertrude associates with Ophelia's death, or the flowers and plants, because we also have a willow tree there. Culpepper says that the willow... Quote, both the leaves, bark, and the seed are used to stanch bleeding of wounds and at the mouth and nose, spitting of blood and other fluxes of blood in man or woman, and that it stays the heat of lust. It was also thought to stop the production of semen, and modern testing has shown that willow produces a substance, thihydroxyestrin, that mimics estriol, the hormone that interferes with ovulation and implementation of a fertilized egg. We have recipes as early as 360 after the Common Era that show that willow was used as birth control in ancient and medieval times. Oh, uh-huh. And crowfoots are mentioned in Culpepper's English Physician. He says, these are so common that there are so many, and there are so many that to describe them all would test the patience of you and Socrates himself. And because I have not yet attained the spirit of Socrates, I shall but describe the most usual. Okay. I like that. He's got a sense of humor about him. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I, I don't have the time. There's no time or the, in pa- the day. Paper's expensive. You know what a buttercup looks like. Mm-hmm. And they're not fit to be given inwardly, but the leaves and flowers can be used in a few different medicinal properties. Um, but they pretty much seem to be like draining a blister, but they're definitely poisonous. Mm. Nettles. 
In The English Physician, Nicholas Culpepper says that these provoke women's courses and settle the suffocation or strangling of the mother and all other diseases thereof. Pretty straightforward. Uh She also mentions daisies, which, again, are pain relief. And then we have long purples. Two of the generally agreed upon options are the cuckoo pint or the wild arum, which are the same genus of flower. And Culpepper actually talks about them in The English Physician that they bringeth down women's courses and purgeth them effectually after childbearing to bring away the afterbirth. Mm. They're also extremely toxic. Cuckoopint wild arum is one of the most common causes of accidental plant poisoning based on attendance at hospital emergency departments today. Shoot. While Ophelia has a contraceptive abortificant pain relief slash curing venereal complaints and provoking the menses or bringing forth childbirth and an abortificant and, again, pain relief. Gertrude has a birth control slash stay in the heat of lust, a poison, something that provokes the courses, a pain relief, bringing down the women's courses, bringing down the women's courses, and slash poison. Mm. So all of that to say, especially when we consider that when we talked about like the four humors and women being associated with cool water wet melancholy wet when we have these images for the early modern audience being associated with women um and then gertrude coming in and talking about how ophelia was literally mixing in creating this metaphorical wreath like and trying to pin it all on a willow and through that fell into water the women's element and like returned to it um i think that we're very poetically talking about a failed abortion. Sounds like it. For me, this also explains why Gertrude is unable to, has knowledge of how she died, but is unable to help. Because like Ophelia, Gertrude also have knowledge of these plants and their uses. Because I know that one thing that people talk about a lot is like Gertrude's guilt and Gertrude's culpability. And if she can describe Ophelia's death in this way, and it was a true drowning, why, did she, why didn't she help save her? Right. Like, I think there's also a case here for if Gertrude saw all those flowers as a early modern gentlewoman, noble woman, with the knowledge that she and Ophelia share, it being an accident and Gertrude being there and being unable to do anything, um, I think gives us the answer of why can't she help with the drowning? What if it's not actually drowning? I guess what I'm saying is, what if instead of the plants being the metaphors, the plants are very real tools, and the water and the drowning is the poetry? Mm, I see what you're saying. And that changes everything. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that can help inform theater makers into making better choices for Ophelia, for Gertrude, and also for Hamlet. Right. And... Considering this as, like, early modern fact would mm-hmm. answer all lot like, of the those questions. types of questions. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I have a question. I don't know if you know this, but in the gravedigger scene, the gravedigger cheekily uh, implies that Ophelia should not be buried in a Christian cemetery. Right. Uh, but because she's a gentlewoman, she's got some courtesy because of the relationship to the king and the church. Mm-hmm. and what they will do, like a blind eye they'll they'll turn. If 
Ophelia, in fact, did die of a botched abortion. Does that make a difference in terms of it being a suicide or not? Is that something you know? So I think there we still have Gertrude's the only one witnessing this, and mm-hmm. she's the one telling the story, and she's telling the facts of the story to men. And men's knowledge of the time were kind of like, women take herbs to like do things with their body. Right. I'm looking at that scene right now. They talk about like, did she drown herself on purpose or not? Drowning was this method of death by suicide that kind of like gave this like could be accidental could be not and that sort of equivocation of guilt in uh it allowed for um the early modern audience to be like ah well she does get a christian burial then because we can't know if it was an accident or not right so all of this all of this to say that yeah essentially because gertrude is the one witness who is presenting the story to the men making the decisions she knows the truth and she could spin it so that it's not the same as Mm -hmm. another kind of um, self-inflicted death. Correct. And again, it's a difference between like ecclesiastical court and Mm -hmm. civil court. And they think that like, it's literally because she is a gentlewoman that she is getting a Christian burial when she drowned herself because they believe that like what Mm -hmm. she did was self-inflicted, but they don't seem to have like a whole lot of facts about her death. Like, the coroner says she drowned. Then we do get like that the ceremony itself is very sparse. And right. the doctor of divinity, so the priest, is like, we've done as much. And her death was doubtful. Like, she should not have gotten a Christian burial. Yeah. Yeah, there was too much that was suspect about the circumstances. But he's, yeah, but uh, she he's is allowed them a favor. virgin crants. So she's being allowed to be buried like a virgin in a Christian burial. Mm-hmm. And um, if we do any more, we would profane the service of the dead. Laertes tells the doctor that, like, she'll be an angel when, and he's when you're in hell. Be in hell. Yeah. But I, reflecting on this information, I really like the depth that that provides to people discussing, but also producing Hamlet because it adds an element to Hamlet and Ophelia, like you were saying. It adds an element to Hamlet and Ophelia's relationship. It better justifies Ophelia going mad compared to Hamlet broke her heart and she lost her father and she went mad. It gives her Mm -hmm. fate much more motive, I suppose, compared to just, well, let's try to logic away madness, something that we don't really fully understand and is, you know, represented a certain way on the stage. And um, yeah. And it also gives us an answer of, like, why does Gertrude seem to not want to see Ophelia? And then all of a sudden is like, I wish you would have been my Hamlet's wife. Right. There's more reason for her to say that if she's aware that, like, if they had just been able to get married. This would have you know, been prevented. This would have... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that gives Gertrude m- more reasonable remorse. Because, like you were saying, if it was truly just drowning and she saw everything that happened... Why would she not go into the water and save Ophelia? Why would she not call for someone to go save Ophelia? If we take it literally at face value, Gertrude is close enough to Ophelia when Ophelia tries to hang a garland on a willow branch to tell what the flowers are. How far away can you be to tell that and be far enough away that you can't help a drowning person save someone from drowning? Right. But if it's... This other option, 
But then this other option. What could Gertrude even do? Right. So this is the unsaid stuff that goes over the heads of the modern person mm-hmm. because we don't know this stuff until Elise brings it to the podcast and says, I found this stuff. I mean, I got to give credit where credit is due. This rabbit hole started many years ago when I played Ophelia and we entertained this possibility based on just looking at the idea of why is Rue the one flower that Ophelia takes for herself? And then, you know, there are people who do have this knowledge still. And one of them said to me afterwards, oh, honey, if Ophelia could only wait a few more years, Plan B would be invented. Hmm. That's a tragedy. Where do theater makers go about with this information? You know, like we mentioned this plenty mm-hmm. of times. What do you do with this information? How do you, especially for people like us, not us personally, but audience members who don't study the medicinal uses of plants and herbs and flowers in the early modern era before attending right. a performance of Hamlet at their local community theater. Sure. You know, the question then for theater makers is, when you take this, how do you telegraph it? I think that, you know, giving your actors the knowledge and letting it inform the choices that you make in that nunnery scene, like we can't change what he's saying. What he is saying is misogynist, right? But what if there's at least part of that scene where he is not just outright yelling and screaming at her, which I've seen before? What if he's not physically abusive to her, which I've Mm -hmm. seen before? Mm -hmm. What if there is just a change in him over the course of that scene? And if she's keeping this a secret from him the whole time, right? Because we also don't have language where she's like, hey, guess what? Also probably too early for her to know. Then, you know, it allows our Gertrude to have answers. It allows our Gertrude to maybe have more reasons for not wanting Ophelia to be seen, not wanting Ophelia to come in when the king's around, more urgency. You know, there's subtle things of like touching her stomach when Hamlet says something like, why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? If she's thinking, oh, right, I've missed a period. Right. That could be an indicator. And I think it's just allowing ourselves to take the text at less face value as theater makers. This has more depth to it. And if it adds something to the production to help make Ophelia and Gertrude a little bit more 3D and less Mm -hmm. victims of Hamlet and Claudius... Right. I think that has power, even if we're not sitting our audience down and being like, so let me tell you about Rosemary, okay? Um, Right. (laughs) Let's literally list out all of the ways it was used during this time period. What do you think about this? We can go look at like the choices. Ophelia and Gertrude aren't agency-less. Dramaturgs exist. Dramaturgy exists for a reason. Right. Our actors and our production, our director can make more informed decisions about how can we show that these two characters are not just weak-willed women, but in fact that they are doing what they can to control right. their situation. And they succeed when they make choices. Yeah, whether that's for the, the better or for the worse, they do succeed at their choice. Right. And I would also have a hard time believing that they don't have agency because Hamlet speaks about Gertrude and Ophelia in a way that's based on the time period's desire for women to not have agency, to take a step back and not participate in certain Mm -hmm. activities as people who have sex or people who express themselves in certain ways. And if actively participating in something that 
was objectionable to objectionable for Hamlet. Yeah, to the moralists of the time or Hamlet, the moralist Hamlet, he wouldn't be speaking to them in the ways that he does. Right. So clearly they have agency because otherwise they would be sitting on their hands and Hamlet would have. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hamlet is trying to control them because they have agency and he knows it and he doesn't want them to participate in agency. Yeah. I think what we can do with this information and acknowledging that they have agency is like as theater makers, we can make productions where Hamlet says misogynist things, says sexist things, but the production is not inherently misogynist or sexist. Correct. Because you cannot avoid the language and you cannot avoid how Hamlet treats Ophelia and Gertrude. But that does not mean that you as the theater maker have to be sexist. That doesn't have to be the statement you are making by producing Hamlet. You can make it a commentary on what happens when misogyny and sexism are put Rears its ugly head. Rears its ugly head. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note... Yeah, on that note... Thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare Any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Romeo and Juliet, Act 5, Scene 3, spoken by Montague. But I can give thee more, for I will raise her statue in pure gold, that whiles Verona by that name is known, there shall no figure at such rate be set as that of true and faithful Juliet.'